Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Today's episode is one that I'm really excited about. I'm sitting down with Angela J. Harrington. She is the author of the incredible book, Deconstructing Your Faith Without Losing Yourself. If you haven't heard of this book, if you haven't heard of Angela, you need to go check out the book and you need to go follow Angela because the content, both in the book and in her day-to-day post, is so valuable and so helpful for anyone who is on a journey of deconstruction. And look, I'm not going to lie. I've had a couple conversations lately relating to the topic of deconstruction, and I know it's not for everybody. I know there's some who uh, skip these types of episodes or you know feel like it's off track, but I just happen to know that for myself and I know for many of you that are listening, uh, these are topics that are being talked about. These are things that you're thinking about, you're experiencing. And the reason I wanted to have Angela on is because her book is such a helpful resource for understanding the process of what it means to ask questions. And I think in fundamentalist circles, so often it's easy to go through our day-to-day life without ever questioning anything. Living in that black and white rigid system made it so easy to make decisions but we never knew really why we were making the decisions we're making. And so wherever you end up on the spectrum of faith, religion, belief, uh, I think there's something helpful to be learned here. And we got pretty deep on a couple subjects here. And one of the topics I'm most excited for you to hear about is the discussion of, you know, yes, preserving your individuality, which uh, I think is an important thing but also deciding who to let within your inner circle and what it means to build relationships with people who may not necessarily be 100% like-minded. I really appreciate this conversation. I know you will too. And I want to really thank Angela from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to do this episode with me. Again, there's a link in the show notes of this episode where you can grab a copy of her book, Deconstructing Your Faith Without Losing Yourself. And uh, if you haven't already got a copy of the book, you definitely want to do so immediately. And if you're not following Angela, be sure to do that as well. But without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Angela Harrington. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Angela, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation and always a little bit nervous to venture into the murky waters of the deconstruction conversation. Um, But I know it's one that my audience is fascinated by. Many are experiencing some version of that. Um, And I think that's probably the best place to start this conversation because words have meaning, but they have different meanings to different people. So when you say deconstruction, just setting the stage for this conversation, what does deconstruction mean to you? Yeah. So for me, deconstruction is really examining everything you believe. And, and sort of doing it with open hands and saying, these things that I have thought were always unchallengeable, 
maybe they're not, <laughs> right? Like, um, and just examining all the things and then sort of sifting and sorting through our entire belief system and evaluating what's actually true and, and holy and sacred versus what is culturally imposed and actually does a lot of harm. So the sifting and sorting and then kind of releasing the things that no longer feel resonant. And it's not just like, oh, I don't like that song anymore or, you know, it's not that. It's it's on a deep theological level and a lot of times an ethical level about what does harm and what does not harm. It, it sounds like your experience in religion was one where you were comforted by the structures that were in place and you were comforted by the black and white. And I'm always telling people like, that's to me, the attraction of religion is that everything is black and white and the answers are clear. It's yes or no, or we're not sure. So it's a no, you know, and that's right. an easy path to follow. Um, what is it that made that system all of a sudden feel like it wasn't kind of fulfilling its full purpose and you weren't experiencing like true wholeness in a system like that? Yeah, I, I think for me, as with most of the people I've talked to um, who are in deconstruction, it it seemed like an all of a sudden thing. But in hindsight, when you start looking backwards, you're like, oh, I was deconstructing for a long time. Uh, but the the sort of, you know, come to Jesus moment, for lack of a, a better phrase, was when I was in- That's a very interesting phrase I know, this, right? uh, for this conversation. <laughs> I, yeah, I think using it now, it feels like a little guilty pleasure of like, oh, right. look, I can still say this and not get hit by lightning. Um, but they, I think for me, the, the, that sort of, you know, pinnacle event was when I was in seminary and mm. I went to a great seminary, um, you know, a, a, a pretty social justice for, um, focused denomination affirmed women in, in leadership and, and behind the pulpit. And I was still running into some sexism. I was still running into the, the stained glass ceiling. And I did a research project on whether or not, uh, Gen X women, have access to leadership opportunities and mentoring in the church. And I was pretty devastated by some of the things that leaders were sharing behind the scenes, things that I thought I could outwork or just become more holy, become more sanctified, and that I wouldn't run into that. And mm. the, these were some of the most brilliant women uh, who were in significant positions in a, a few different denominations, and they were still running into those things. So mm. that kind of, it made me take a step back and say, a, this is real. This is a real problem. It's not just in my head. And B, if this is, if there's hypocrisy around this, where else there, where else might there be hypocrisy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I loved in the book you mentioned that you were getting a kind of behind the scenes look. And the more deeply you got into the ministry world, for lack of a better term, it, kind of like it's like seeing behind the curtain and you're kind of yeah. seeing the operating system of this organization and i know for me that's something i grew up as a kid whose parents were in ministry from the time like as long as i can remember and so i was always behind the scenes which had its perks and you didn't see some of the things that maybe some other people saw that were negative but also you did see some of those negatives and then after leaving um, high school and working in close proximity to a church, I remember seeing how much the church ran like a business and all of the structures and systems that just felt very odd. So we'd talk about the moves of the Holy Spirit and like this natural thing. And then you're hearing the behind the doors meeting of what's our follow-up process for visitors. And here's our like sales funnel to get people to stay and to move up. And it really was disenfranchising to kind of get that behind the scenes look. Um, you mentioned it's not a quick process. How long was it when you started seeing the cracks in the system to going, you know, this is definitely like an issue. It's not just like these isolated things here and there. Yeah. I, I think for me, it was several years and you know, maybe even creeping up on a decade. And I'm sure people listening are like, oh my gosh, no, that's going to take forever. So the asterisk with my story is that I am incredibly stubborn. And because of my uh, traumatic experiences in the past that weren't related to the church, I tend to lean towards being hypervigilant and just working hmm. harder. 
right? And mm-hmm. so other people probably got there faster is what I'm saying. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it's multiple years. Um, and really what happens is if you have to get to the point where the pressure to change is so great that it's harder to stay where you're at than it is to do the work of deconstruction. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm curious just for me, you, you yeah. said something that was interesting. You said that your approach was like hypervigilance and then working mm-hmm. harder in my experience, like hypervigilance, like hypervigilance gets me out of things very quickly where like, I feel like I see something I'm like, okay, I'm out. And it wasn't always that way. I stayed, I had my own like decade long kind of trying to figure this thing out. Um, for you, when you say that, was it something where like you saw the problems and you were working hard to fix them yourself or like, how did that play out practically? Yeah. It's really interesting how different all of our responses are. Right. For me, the hypervigilance was if I can see something bad coming, I can fix it. I can avoid it and I can Mm -hmm. keep myself and my family safe. And really there wasn't a lot of awareness around keeping myself safe. Try that again. There wasn't a lot of awareness around keeping myself safe. It's a Freudian slip again. We've got a couple in this one so far. Right. So far, (laughs) we're only a few minutes in. It's going to be good. Um, There was a lot of focus on achieving. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of focus on if you just work hard enough, things will be okay. You'll get Mm. the approval that you want. You'll get the positions that say you're actually a great human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think that's why for me, the hypervigilance was double down, just just double down, double Mm. down, double down, right? And deep down underneath that, it was just a longing for acceptance and approval that had been missing from large portions of my life. You mentioned in the the book, um, which kind of stuck stuck out to me and you said if my deconstruction only frees me from oppressive doctrines it's not deconstruction it's self-preservation and it sounds to me like your initial response was that self-preservation first and foremost which is not a bad trait by any stretch like self-preservation is an important thing to uh to worry about but i think a lot of times deconstruction journeys seem to start from a place of oh this is actively harming me and i'm starting to realize it um, but then it expands into other people. Yours seems like the inverse where it's like, I see how this could harm other people. It took you a minute to go, oh, this is harming me too. <laughs> like this is a really dangerous kind of spot. Yeah. I, I feel like it's a both and because initially it was about avoiding harm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, you got to remember that we as human beings are wired to avoid harm. Yeah. Like our nervous system says, oh, this is bad. Get out of here. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, this is bad. Stand up and fight for yourself. And I think that because I was so good, I still am really, really good at reading rooms Mm -hmm. and incredibly smart. It was very easy for me to say, okay, this is what's coming. We recognize this. This is how to not let it go bad this time. Because Mm -hmm. I had internalized so many of the bad things that had happened in my life as my own fault. Whether Mm. I was actively responsible or not didn't seem to matter as much. I didn't have that context, right? So that was sort of the front end of things. And I would say that I was very aware of how things impacted my family, my kids. But when I look back at the greater world, like recognizing my own bias so that I wasn't doing harm in a bigger circle I don't think I got there until, again, it was so uncomfortable. Like I realized the church was hurting me so badly. And also I had so much privilege that like, what other harm are we doing? And Mm. so that's kind of when I was able to examine my own bias. I think I went in with a a low level understanding. Like I, I understood so much of the social justice. I had wonderful parents who made sure that they pointed out the hard pieces of lives rather than just this you know, sunny, happy, let's go on vacation. Like, you know, it, they they were very rooted in the real world and the struggles of a lot of different people. But I don't think I understood the idea of privilege and understood how much power I actually had in the church as a white, educated, heterosis, married female um, until, until my own 
world kind of started to crumble a little bit. Like you're seeing harm to others, you're seeing harm to yourself. And obviously, you know, I believe you have to put your oxygen mask on first for you can help other people. But I'm curious, like, how do you navigate what is your responsibility in terms of, you know, I, I, I've said this before, like there's people who, who leave cultish environments. I cover a lot in my show. They leave toxic environments. Mm-hmm. And there's the people that like, I'm getting the hell out of here. And then there's the people that like, it's like the end of a horror movie and they hop back in the truck and like, we're going to go get the rest of the people out of there, you know? And obviously not everybody can commit their full life to doing the latter. But do you think that everybody has a responsibility once they recognize the system that they were in was harmful and that they were benefiting from it? Like how much responsibility does everybody have to go back and start helping the people that are kind of left behind or trying to educate those people or help those people leave left behind. That was your Freudian. There you go. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's such a beautiful question. And it's also so ugly and messy and complex because just like there's no one singular faith experience that all humans get a piece of, there's really no one path towards healing. Hmm. And there's really no one path towards liberation. So I, I think if I had to give an answer, I would say that um, the amount that you have to invest back into the liberation of others and and even the the challenging and the dismantling of of the system that's doing so much harm to other people really depends on on how much harm you've experienced. Hmm. It's not a one to one ratio, right? Uh, but like for instance, if you if you think about the hierarchy of culture as a bullseye. And, and, you know, in the center, in Christian culture, um, that's where the most power is, uh, is concentrated. Then we have the rings that go out. The further you are out, the more marginalized you are by the church. So the more marginalized you are by the church, the more harm is being actively done to you, hmm. the less privilege and the less resources you have to contribute to making that system better. The inverse is also true. So the closer you are to the center, the more privilege you have in a system, the more ability you have to go back and challenge that system. Because again, me as a white educated woman, I'm going to get into rooms that my black and queer friends are not allowed to go into. We have a hierarchy in our culture and it's very well defined in Christian culture and especially in the high control abusive religious systems. So there's no one good answer. What would you say to people who are listening who, you know, because I know there's some people in here that are sneaking episodes of the show that work in some of the churches that I talk about. Yeah. And I think there's some legitimately good people, at least the optimist in me wants to believe there's some truly good people who are staying in some of these places with the feeling that they can change things. I, from the outside, look in and go, you're fighting an uphill battle. The system's designed to stop people like you. You're never going to have the power that you need to undo the amount of power that this person has or this teaching mm-hmm. has. Like, what would you say to people who are kind of rearranging uh, furniture on the Titanic uh, kind of situation? And like, how do you know when it's time to stop trying to change the system and just evacuate? I think, again, it comes back to privilege. And I know a lot of people who um, benefit from unhealthy systems get really mad at me for talking about privilege. But it really no. is. Privilege is what allows you to harm other people without getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like That's kind of the right. So it depends on how much privilege you have in the system. And I think that there is a, a you could be a low level um, interrupter of power without it actually costing you very much if you have a lot of privilege in that system. So I think what I would recommend mm-hmm. is how do I know when to leave? How do I know when I'm actually fighting and I'm, I'm actually pushing against the system? You need to listen to people who aren't in the system. Because like you said, powerful systems are designed to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not constantly butting up against this unhealthy, unhealthy leadership, this unhealthy system, you're probably still leveraging some of your privilege to fit into the community. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's one of the things that comes up a lot in conversations I have with people where, and I'm sure you've come across this a lot with your clients and just even in your your own experiences that, you know, there are people who are not questioners and don't buck against the system and don't, Mm -hmm. you know, they very much are yes men for lack of a better word. I don't want to like devalue that group of people because it's just, there's different people. Some people tend to fall into that realm a little bit easier Mm -hmm. and fall into the flow of a system or find comfort in that kind of system. And a lot of times I'll have conversations with people like that who encountered the same people I did, the same systems I did, and their response is, that never happened to me, or I never saw that. Yeah, And, you know, it's because they've never questioned anything. You know, I, I think it was, I forget who it was I had on the show. So credit to whoever it was, but, uh, they were saying, if you want to find out if your leader is toxic, like disagree with them. (laughs) And I I think about that all the time of like, yeah, if you go to church every Sunday morning and you sit in the pew and then you put your tithe in the offering plate and then you leave, you probably did have a positive experience. If you went to the office to ask a question, that's probably going to open up a whole nother window of possibilities that will change your perspective. Yeah. And I I think that there are probably people who are listening that are like, no, I have permission to ask questions. It can't be an unhealthy environment because I can ask questions and I can express doubts. And I would challenge you to say, are you able to ask questions within a certain perimeter? Like if you jump over the fence and start asking questions that are off limits, then is there a backlash? And if you've never asked those questions that are air quotes off limits in your denomination or, or your particular church, do you actually know how safe of a space it is to be curious and explore faith and, and all kinds of different angles? Probably not. To plain devil's advocate here. Yeah. Because um, that's what I do in my head all day is I say something and then I go, what would I say if I was the opposite of me? Yeah. There's within religion itself. so. People who are in a church context, I think a pastor listening might say, you know, yeah, questions are totally welcome, you know, but if you don't agree with my answers, like you shouldn't be coming here or you shouldn't be part of this church. And I, I guess my question would be, where does objectivity meet with subjectivity when it comes to the religious and faith experience? Because I'm one of those people where I hear conversations sometimes from people where they go, Hey, my church doesn't, you know, they won't let me have this belief about end times or something, you know, or this thing or baptism or whatever the topic is. And sometimes I go like, well, why do you want to be a part of that church if it doesn't reflect your beliefs? But also I understand there's other elements to church besides just the belief. There's the community, things like that. So for the people that are going, hey, well, there is some black and white in my mind. There is some mm-hmm. black and white of this is what, you know, we believe the Bible is literal. We be- believe this. Like, where do you like have those conversations where those things can meet and have like a healthy dialogue of like, we believe this is the absolute truth, but I don't. How do we meet in the middle there? I, I think that meeting in the middle requires honoring each other's humanity. And what you'll notice is that some of the most toxic, awful environments, whether they're religious or not, are built on this foundation that if I disagree with you, then you're somehow less of a human being 
who deserves respect and autonomy and compassion mm. and empathy, right? So you and I probably disagree on some things. And yet here we are in a conversation where both of us have our walls down and we're respecting each other. Even if I were to say something just totally out of like something just totally that you know is wrong. Like, hey, I live in Indiana and that is south of the equator. Well, it's not. I wouldn't know. You could say that. Uh, I'm so bad with geography. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe that was a bad example, but you know, like. Look, I'm from California where it's like, we're California and then there's the South. The That's literally in my mind. It's like, there's us and there's people with Southern accents and that is the world. <laughs> Yeah, but there, there's that, you know, when you, this is my big beef with apologetics too. I don't, I don't, I don't go after people, but I go after ideas that I think are harmful. And, and the, the thing about apologetics is it's a battle plan to defend what you were taught to believe that you probably believe right now. That's not the same as having a humble, vulnerable conversation with someone who probably has different beliefs because I have yet to find two people who have the exact same experience and the exact same belief. My husband and I don't even have the same beliefs, hmm. yet we can still come to the dinner table and talk about a sermon or a show or the latest church scandal and disagree mm -hmm. without feeling like your opinion somehow is a threat to me. It's just not, right? And and so the middle ground isn't whether you and I believe on the same things. The middle ground is are we able to be grown-ups and have a conversation without solely focusing on defending what we believe? And in a lot of circles, all of us here in the South, <laughs> the answer is no. The answer is no. You 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 can't get people together to have those conversations, especially in an election year. I'm going to sidestep that uh, spicy little landmine that you just laid out uh, really quickly, and we might get back to sure. it. But I'm curious for relationships. This is something I've wrestled with because, mm -hmm. again, going back to the black and white rigidity of religious systems, community is pretty easy within that context because your friends are the people in the pew next to you and your activities are the things the church puts on and like. It's a very like done for you process when it comes to relationships and counseling, like where are kids going to go to school? Well, we have a Christian school, like all those things are laid out so easily. And I'm curious for those who are deconstructing, I think the most common emotion that people express is loneliness. And I know that it's one thing, it's one thing for me where I always grew up hearing like get together with like-minded believers like-minded, like-minded, like-minded. And like yeah. the point of relationship was built on a foundation of being like-minded and having an agreement on something. Mm -hmm. And now I find myself in a spot where I'm uncertain about more things than I've ever been certain about anything. I am fluid in a lot of things. So things are changing very mm -hmm. regularly. Like there's some default things that have, that are pretty consistent and, but there's a lot of things politically or like questions about ethical things like that go mm -hmm. up and down a little bit. If you're not building a relationship on like-mindedness, how are you finding your tribe and tribalism is yeah. probably not a good thing to, to indicate, but like, how do you find your community when you're not based around a central idea? Yeah. So it comes back to how do you define like-mindedness? Are, are you and I like-minded? Does that mean that we have the same theology of all things? Hmm. Or does that just mean that we believe that people should be safe in spiritual spaces and we believe that people have the right to make their own decisions without coercion or fear of punishment uh, for them or for their families? I would say that makes us like-minded if we both can agree on that. Does that mean that we agree on... What communion, like, do we do grape juice? What do we do? Do we do wine? Do we do like real bread? Do we do the little wafers? What if you're like, that's not like mindedness. That's really getting into a nitty gritty that isn't essential for relationship. So I think that makes sense to me for like a broader community and like being able to sit down and have diverse conversations with almost anyone that's willing to come in on that approach of like, Hey, we respect each other. And I think like in a workspace, like that's like a baseline thing people should develop as a skill is like, I can sit down with someone who's not the same, 
but we can respect each other. I think for me, drilling down into like the deeper, like inner circle relationships is the thing that's Mm -hmm. been very tricky for me is that, and, and where I've kind of gotten to, and it's similar to what you just said, but I'll just keep riffing on it because I think it's something that I keep working through is for me, it's not so much like, do we agree on the solution to a problem, but it's like, Mm -hmm. do we share the same approach with how we receive and process information? Mm -hmm. And like, because I I think like the people I struggle to have close proximity to are the people that are thoughtless in their decisions that fall from, you know, I know many people that say they deconstructed, but they really just left fundamentalist Christianity. And now like anything Richard Dawkins says, like he's their new pastor and like, I'm all in line with him. And like, they never thought about it. They just switched one switch off and became a fundamentalist somewhere else. But again, I still wrestle with the, like when you're drilling down into like the inner circle, when you're going one layer below, like, Hey, just general acquaintance, like what are you building a relation relationship on? Like, is it just shared interest or is it like some deeper, like, philosophy of how the world operates because again that's subject yeah. to change as we receive new information yeah and i i think the reason that we ask that question a lot when we're going through deconstruction and even struggle with like who do i who who do i let into my inner circle is because we have been taught by unhealthy religions to say that like-mindedness is what keeps us safe And so to let anyone into my inner circle that doesn't have the same core spiritual beliefs as me is actually a threat to my soul. And as a parent, no big deal. Yeah. As a (laughs) a a threat to my soul, it's a threat to the soul of my children and my Mm. husband and my like, Oh yeah. If I start listening to these people, I might go down the wrong path. And then not only am I sinning in this life, God's going to be mad at me in this life, but for eternally, Mm punishing and hating me, even though God loves me, in air quotes, that that, that's the slippery slope, right? Mm. The way that you control people is by making them afraid of the slippery slope. Because even a little baby step that feels healthy and normal, like sitting with people who don't have the same spiritual beliefs as me, then becomes a threat Mm -hmm. to everything that I care about. So I would go back to, again, like-minded, right? Like what makes someone safe enough to be in your inner circle? Is it the same theology as me? Maybe, sometimes, maybe not. I kind of look at it as, as like, are we, are we valuing each other equally? Hmm. Is there a mutual respect for each other's autonomy? Can we talk about faith, religion, spirituality, without pressuring the other person to convert to what we believe. Hmm. Because if not, you're not safe enough to be in my inner circle and I don't want you around my kids. Sorry. That's just where I draw that line. Hmm. But even if you are somebody who is on a completely opposite end of one of the bajillion belief system spectrums, if we can sit down and have a conversation where it's not a pissing battle, trying to be like, overcoming the other person's objections and trying to make you believe like I believe, I would love to have a conversation with you. Hmm. That doesn't mean you're necessarily getting to my inner circle. We still have to, it's like dating, right? Just because I think that you're a safe person doesn't mean that you and I are going to get married. Hmm. It means that I'm willing to go sit in a public space, a coffee shop and have a conversation with you. And then if you seem safe, then we can go into to more vulnerable, more personal conversations. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to align with my theology. Right. The only time that that happens is when we've been taught that assimilation is holiness and that's what keeps us safe and that's what makes relationships valuable. But is it actually? Like, Mm. no matter, that's not even biblical. Like, it's just not. So wherever you're at, If you're in a place where you're like, I just don't know, take a step back and ask how you were taught to determine if someone is worthy of a real relationship with you. Start Mm. there. Just pull on that thread a little bit. Don't even worry about what the Bible says. Don't even worry about, you know, anything other than just like, 
what what makes me think people are are worthy of being part of my my most vulnerable story. Hmm. Start there and just see where you land. It's not so much them being a cookie cutter version of you, which I already agree with wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like the next step is are they actively harming? And if not, then you're free to build a deeper relationship over time through that right. those shared conversations. That yeah. I love the word assimilation too. Um I'm a I'm a big Star Trek person. And so well sorry, let me know. I'm a big Star Trek nice. person. I was sitting right behind me. Um, but I'm a big Star Trek person. And um, in Star Trek, they have the Borg. Mm-hmm. And uh, their whole thing is they travel around and they assimilate people into this huge cube. This is so nerdy. I can't believe I do this on the show. But but they, the whole thing is that there's no individuality. Like There's only the collective. And I've never thought about that in parallel to most religion. But that seems to be most communities that people are in. It's a collective where individuality has to be checked at the door to be a member. But the strength is in the diversity of the people who are in the relationship. Like a true community has people of different personalities and perspectives, all kind of checking and balancing with each other, which is why the crew in Star Trek always has a leg up on the collective, which exactly. yeah. So there you go. There's my Star Trek. I think it's amazing. Today. But but I, I when you said assimilate, I was like, that is literally most religious groups are just giant Borg cubes. They are. I yeah. I mean, that's cult 101. Yeah. And and so for a lot of people, a lot of clients that I work with, we're you know, we can't go into shiny happy people. We can't go into some of those documentaries that have been released because it's too close to home. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, was I in a cult? Was I not in a cult? Go watch a cult documentary that has nothing to do with religion and pay attention to how people get broken down. Because cult 101 is that if I can rob you of your autonomy, your ability to make decisions as an independent human being, then where does that power go? Because you don't have power anymore. It goes into the collective. Mm -hmm. So a system that can strip us away from our own power gets strong, which is why this is mind boggling. Okay. That's why asking questions that are just a little bit out of that defined perimeter of your religious organization gets such a just violent response Hmm. because you're not just asking questions. You're threatening authoritative power. Hmm. And anytime authoritative power is threatened, it gets messy. It gets really defensive and it gets really angry and really violent. And that's what we're seeing right now in deconstruction mm-hmm. spaces because so many people are stepping out and they're like, I don't, I don't know what's next for me, but I know what's happening right now is not healthy or safe. I'm out. And the more of us that disconnect, the more of us that become those nuns, N-O-N-E-S that are in so many of the, the different research and surveys, the less power that organization has. You mentioned the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, to be very clear. But uh, someone's going to take this. They're like, actionable advice, become a nun after yeah. this episode. Um, <laughs> I, I, Join I, our cult. Yeah, Eric right. and I are forming a new cult. <laughs> oh, it would be so easy. I always, tell, I always tell my friend, I'm like, man, I could start such a killer church. It would be so easy. I know, you know? right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's harder being ethical, you know, but you can it really, a cult would be great. Uh, really easy. Um, I'm curious to, I I wanted to ask you this cause like I have my own take on it, but does deconstruction have an end point? And if not, should it? I, my answer is probably not. Right. Um, just like, like like-minded on this. So are you ever actually, (laughs) here's where the theologians are going to freak out. Are you ever actually sanctified? Are you ever actually done learning more about faith and and the obvious answer there's no like are we ever done learning about anything and i would say that the hard in the trenches trying not to drown grief filled season of deconstruction isn't the entirety of deconstruction mm-hmm. right 
because I mean, if you just go back to the philosophical idea of deconstruction, you're just sifting and sorting and taking things apart until there's no more to take apart. Hmm. In my mind, that kind of means I'm dead. (laughs) Like, Like when I can't process these things anymore and ask more questions and learn more, that means there's not a whole lot left of me. So yes, and yes, I, I, I agree with you that deconstruction doesn't ever truly end. And also, for those of you who are still in that really heavy, messy part that are listening, know that that part does not last forever, especially if you get a good therapist, especially if you find a good, safe community that will hold you while you navigate this part, you do get to the other side of that. But I hope you never stop questioning and being curious because to me, that's life. That's life-giving. And that's what we were designed to do as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. I I started thinking about it because I would hear so many people, like especially in the religious world, that would go, it's okay if you deconstruct. What matters is where you end up. Yeah. And my Just come immediate- back. Yeah. As long as you end up back where I as am. As long as you come we're back, good. we're good. Yeah. Um. You know, but for me, I was always like, I don't feel like you ever end up like mm-hmm. this idea that I'm going to all of a sudden hit this peak. Like now I know everything and it's all in line. Like it feels like it's always going to be messy and we're always yeah. going to be reconciling new information with what we've always held to be true. And I think that's one of the reasons there's so many people who feel traumatized now mm-hmm. is that. At five, they were allowed to say, I've ended up and I believe in all of these ideas I can barely comprehend. And I put a date in my Bible and I got baptized and I have a picture of it in the Bible. And it's like, and then they get to 20 and they're like, but now I have this new piece of information. And now I don't know if the denom, like at least I don't know if the denomination I was raised in is right. Maybe is, is any of this right? Like, it sends you on this spiral because your yeah. certainty is questioned and certainty is the thing that we're all craving all the time. Like, because it yeah. is that black and white feels a lot safer than floating in the gray. You yeah. Know? But, and I would say that that's conditioning. That's what we were taught to believe. Hmm. But as infants and toddlers, there's a lot of gray, right? Hmm. And if, if we are surrounded by, grownups and and older children who allow us to explore that gray and will, you know, give us a hug after we fall or help us fix something if we break it or like, you know, if that supportive environment is there, I don't think we would ever throttle down curiosity. No. I just don't. I it's it's conditioning and I think it's here's what's really important. I think that the majority of people who are so tightly clinging to these doctrines and these behaviors and all of those things. I, I think the intent is good because that's all that is known. Yeah. We can only pass on what we know. And so for those of us who are in deconstruction and facing this huge backlash, especially from people who are spiritual mentors and, and from those who love us, raised us, I think the majority of them are doing it because they think that, that we're actually in danger. That doesn't excuse those that are abusive. That doesn't say that no one ever does it on purpose. Yeah. But I, I you know, I, I think the, the, those of us that are kind of at the lower level and not at the top of the hierarchy in those powerful systems are doing what we actually think is best um, for the yeah. people that we care. You, you just segued immediately into the question I wanted to ask, which is going back to the landmine of politics or, yeah. or the landmine of religion, pick a landmine that we could step on here. <laughs> um there are a lot of people who are well-intentioned and have true concern because they are convinced that maybe not that they're absolutely right, but that Uh they see a loved one in a system that they think is harmful. So this could be the deconstructionist looking at their parents going to the church that they grew up in, or this could be the parents in the church talking to their kid who just got a tattoo and is like living their life kind of deconstructing in a different place that just feels unfamiliar. And, yeah. and you know, I, I, I always kind of try to live by the thing of like, I assume the worst interpretation of what I'm going to do and assume the worst impact of what I do, yeah. you know, and, uh, and assume the best of what people are telling me, like try mm-hmm. to try to give people benefit of the doubt and hope, you know, that 
hope that people give me benefit of the doubt, but know that they probably aren't, you know? Um, I'm curious. So like if you are in a spot where you're legitimately concerned uh, or you legitimately feel like you have discovered something that is better or something, a religious point of view that's better or a Mm -hmm. polit or you see a political thing that you feel like this isn't really right. Like how do you engage in that conversation and have the healthy discussion without just trying to convert them? Cause like there are things in life we're constantly trying to convert people to our way of thinking, even in non-toxic ways. Like you want people, you wrote a book because you want people to change their perspective on deconstruction. You feel like there's a, a process there or a, a point of view that people should embrace. Mm-hmm. How do you go about sharing something that matters to you without trespassing and like violating everyone else's own yeah. autonomy? It's really interesting that we're talking about politics and kind of skirting around it because there's a tremendous lesson that we can learn from the uh, 2016 election. And I'm not Let's picking sides. Let's not, dive in. Right? Take a like, side. Let's this go. isn't about pick your candidate. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's a really interesting documentary and I'll, I'll see if I can find it and email it to you after this so you can share it. Um, Cambridge Analytica, which we know because they stole Facebook data, not recommending that you take data and steal it. Right. They had a ridiculously powerful strategy where they were able to figure out who was a hundred percent camp Democrat, who was a hundred percent camp Republican, who was a hundred percent camp independent. and then who wasn't. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they were so successful at what they did is because one of the parties said, go to the middle people. And that was their strategy. Go to the middle people who aren't a hundred percent set in those absolutes and hit on those hot button issues and, and get them into the conversation. But here's where it went side. Here's where it was unethical. Get them on the side of the conversation that we're on. So only tell, you know, go talk about, say, gun control. Go talk about abortion. Go talk about these definitely, uh, these issues that are definitely weaponized by political uh, opponents of each other. But don't tell them everybody else's side. Just tell them our side. And that's where it became controlling and gross. But if you if you watch that documentary, it's actually a brilliant strategy. Because if you are only trying to have these conversations with people who are 100% locked into the completely different opinion you're probably not going to get very far. Even if that person is who you love the most and really want them to come a little bit your way and maybe get rid of some of the toxicity that's in their life, you don't necessarily have control over that. Hmm. So I would say, pick your battles carefully, right? Because every one of those conversations takes energy. It's going to take a toll on you. Mm -hmm. Um, The more you care about that person, the more you're invested in your relationship with that person, the more it's going to take a toll if it doesn't go well. And by go well, I mean, if it's not a healthy conversation, not if you convince them, but like you and I are having a healthy conversation, right? If it were to go sideways and you became abusive, then that is not a healthy conversation. And that is mm-hmm. not, that, that would take a huge toll. It just would. So when you want to have these conversations with people, you have to evaluate mm-hmm. where that person is at and whether you can have a vulnerable conversation with them or if they're just in a place where they're really untrustworthy right now and you either have to set boundaries and not talk about those things or you have to set boundaries and not talk to them at all for a little while or forever. And that's the sure. part of deconstruction that really sucks. There's so much loss yeah. of relationship. It's just so painful. You can curate things. Well, you said choose your choose your battles. I guess it's just another mm-hmm. way to say it, but like curating do we have to talk about this? Like, right. does this part of our thing have to be part of our relationship? Like one of my closest friends, like we're so politically different, but like we just in, well, we do talk about it, Like we rib on each other about stuff like, but it's, it's not something that's crucial to us having a relationship. Like it's yeah. something that's here. And then we agree on these things or we have these points of similar interest. I'll say that over agreement, like mm-hmm. things that we know how to discuss in ways that, lead to a good relationship um so i think that's i think that's really helpful that's Um, a huge green flag when you can be in a relationship and disagree with somebody wonderful mm -hmm. what is a huge red flag is when the person that you're in relationship with 
when you see them dehumanizing people who believe differently. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to that because that means when you start disagreeing with them, they're going to dehumanize you, right? Mm. Um, instead of being another human being de deserving of, of love, compassion, and respect, now you're a demon. Now you're a heretic, right? That There's this condescending like, oh, you're a monster. Mm. I'm a monster because I believe in sprinkle baptism instead of immersion? Really? Like those are the red flags that a lot of times when we're in high control religion or cults, we're taught to ignore. We're taught wow. that that's actually being strong and passionate about what we believe in but it's actually abusive. And so look for those red flags when you're deciding who to let into your inner circle and who's worth having these conversations with because some people just aren't there. Hmm. No, They're just not. They're not in a place where they're willing to invest enough to be in a conversation where they might be wrong. Well, I know we're near the end of our time. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you one question because sure. I'm always curious with authors because you you sit down, you spend a ton of time writing a book, and I feel yeah. like there's got to be a an overarching idea or an important topic that you have in mind when you're going, I hope that everybody who picks up a copy of this book, even if they only read a few pages, mm -hmm. walk away with this core concept or this core message. For you, what do you hope somebody who picks up a copy of your book will walk away with? Yeah, I, I mean... the. The most basic is that they're going to realize they're not alone. Um, I think on a slightly deeper level, this idea that even if everybody abandons you, you can still find your way through this. You can still create a spiritual life where you flourish, no matter what that is, whether that's Christian, not Christian, like wherever you land, you still have the ability to be present in, in that connected with our creator sort of space that you may be missing if you've stepped out of an unhealthy church environment. Love that. Well, if somebody's listening, be sure to grab a copy of Deconstructing Your Faith Without Losing Yourself. Um, it's a really fantastic book. And I posted the other day, like, I feel spoiled that there's a lot of good resources that are coming out. And yeah. I keep getting, like, interviews with people and I'm going like, okay, well, this book has to be the one that's like, like awful like that we got to start hitting like the dip in quality really quickly and it's honestly it was fantastic and and i'm really excited about it um love this conversation and excited to see what you work on in the future i know that's the worst thing to say to someone who's just been slaving away on a book for a long time to go what's next but um but i really love your stuff and i'm excited to keep keep following along as you go through your own journey Thank you. And don't worry, we're already in conversations about what's coming next um, because the reception has been so warm and we have right. so many beautiful people saying, ah, this is great. Um, we're going to make sure that whether it's me or other people, there's more helpful stuff in the pipeline for anybody who's feels like they're just in this wilderness of deconstruction and they're just not able to get out. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me and I'll see everybody in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.